Hi everyone, I'm Barbie Lung and I'm a New York-based cinematographer. Today I invited my colleague and friend DP Autumn Moran for a casual chat in my kitchen about some of her work and the hustle of being a working cinematographer. Autumn started as a camera assistant in Local 600, crewing on feature films such as Blue Ruin and Captain America 2 Winter Soldier before launching her cinematography career with independent narrative short films, commercials, and her first feature of Dyson Men. The short period thriller Among the Lost was honored by the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers. All right, so Autumn, thank you so much You're very for welcome. joining me today. Um, yeah, so let's get into it. So today we're doing a podcast and trying to get some advice out there for um, up-and-coming cinematographers. And so w- why don't you introduce yourself um, to our listeners and tell us, you know, when did you know you wanted to become a cinematographer and how long you've been at it? Okay. Um, hi, I'm Autumn Moran. Um, I kind of came at this from a really roundabout route is where I didn't really, like I was not the kid that wanted to be like a cinematographer. Like I never really occurred to me, didn't have much experience with it growing up, but, um, I was working in advertising and then around that time, like, you know, everything crashed. So I decided to go to grad school. I was an art major undergrad. This seemed like a good, you know, thing to learn. And they had, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to film school to learn how to make them. I'm just going to go back to advertising and make commercials. That was like my game plan. Um, and then once I got there, I really just sort of liked liked shooting and liked telling the stories. And um, I guess I've been doing it now for about five years. And what kind of work yeah. do you do? Like, what do you what do you like to shoot? I mostly shoot narratives, um, and that's sort of what I want to keep doing. Uh, I do. I have done a couple short documentaries, which I have a lot of fun with. Um, I don't see myself being a documentarian like as my main sort of wheelhouse, but I do really love doing it if it's a project or a situation I really am passionate about. What was your first feature? What was that experience like? How did you find it? <laughs> okay. And and um, sort of how long did it take for that to um, get off the ground? Oh, my first feature was of Dyson Men. Um, it was directed by Kelly Slagle, uh, and we shot it in mostly D.C., Maryland area. I don't honestly remember how I found it. It was like sort of a friend of a friend of a friend, you know, somehow we made a connection. And it was about a group of friends who played Dungeons and Dragons. So it was a really interesting experience. I I think we did a, a very good job in pre-production with storyboarding everything out. Um, and we actually wound up shooting it in just 10 days. So it was like, sort of a really hectic, crazy situation, like very long days. Um, but because we did plan everything in pre-production, it was not as crazy as it could have been. Um, was that an example where um, you and the director did have storyboards really well yes, laid out? Yes, we had storyboards for everything, and we very rarely deviated from them. Um, what was interesting is that we could only afford a gaffer for three days of the 10 days. Okay. So I had, um, we had rented this gaffer's equipment. He's a good friend of mine. And, but he could only, we could only afford to bring him on three days. So mm-hmm. we basically had him pre-light the entire like living room set. Like we built like, you know, trusses and hung lights and just left it there. And then I had him on for like the car shoot day. And then there was one other day I brought him on, but everything else but we sort of had to pick and choose when we needed right, an extra. Right, be strategic yeah. about it. 
Um, so I thought that was a really good experience and it sort of, it gave me, it sort of reinforced the fact that like pre-production is super important. Right. You know, I mean, I knew that anyway, but like we would not have been able to do that otherwise. So, um, you know, since you work primarily in narrative, but also a little bit in documentary, can you speak a little bit about the relationship of those? I would say when you're on set on both a narrative and documentary shoot, the it's it's very much similar. Um, you need to tell the story and make sure it'll cut together and that you're expressing what you want to express. I think the biggest difference for me narrative and documentary-wise is pre-production, um, whereas in a documentary, you really don't have the luxury of, you know, being like, we're going to get this shot and this shot and this shot. Whereas in a documentary, or sorry, on a narrative, I generally like to have everything kind of storyboarded out. And like, basically, when I'm on set, I just sort of execute what was already planned. Um, but you still need to be able to like follow, just follow the improvisations and what's happening. Like sometimes something may happen on a narrative set that you did not storyboard for, but it it's gold and sort of the same thing on a doc. Yeah. So for for me, I always find that like I like working a little bit in documentaries to kind of keep sharp on yeah. the way that people move, right? Yes. Because in real life, in real situations, mm-hmm. people move in unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. And then so it kind of brings like a kind of an energy back to narrative. Yes, I you know? agree. Like when, when an actor starts improving or like a weird accent starts mm-hmm. happening and, you know, you, it, it can make it feel yeah. more real in, in a sense. One of the things that I like in narratives and in documentaries, but I try to really go for narratives, it's how it's more of like how people move through their fa- the frame um, as opposed to being very static it can be a static frame but how the characters move in the frame and I think that is very similar to how one shoots a doc because it's all you don't really have a lot to work with in lighting all the time so it's really about all about movement of people in the frame what is like another memorable um experience for you like can you speak a little bit about um among the lost the narrative short yes um that was probably one of my favorite shoots um it was nominated for like the student cinematographer award for ASC um which is really flattering. We didn't win, but still, it was nice. Um, it's nice to be nominated. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it was it was a very like it was a period piece, which is hard to do on a small budget because when was it set? It was set during the plague in the Middle Ages, and we went to upstate New York and basically romped around in the woods. Um, we had a horse. The actor was supposed to ride the horse. He could not ride the horse, by the way. Um, so just make sure actors don't lie in their resumes. Well, they'll always say they can ride yeah, the horse. Yeah, they cannot ride right. the horse. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was a really interesting experience. Um, same, we storyboarded everything. On that one, we did deviate more just because, I mean, we were building sets and the sets are basically just walls of that looked like cottages. So we couldn't like shoot around corners or things like that. One of the really great pauses we had there is the director is also a cinematographer. So between the two of us, we were able to really find creative solutions to pretty much every problem. Do you remember any particular problem they had to solve in terms of lighting yeah. or trying to avoid um, the, the artifice of something? So there's one part where they're out, where there's a person outside with a, like a lantern at night. And we wanted to show, like we didn't want to show much, but we had to show like a little something. So like just the use of like, and we had some lights but not enough to light up an entire field. So just the strategic use of like placement of the lantern, like by his face to like get an eye glint, you know, it was, was it a um, real fire? It was a real fire. Um, 
which since, and we actually wanted a candle, but the candles kept burning down and, you know, consistency wise, it wasn't possible. So we found this old camping lantern in someone's garage and it was dark enough that you wouldn't see that it was like a camping lantern, but it was enough light to at least like silhouette the face while I used all the other lights to like kind of light the background. So speaking more generally, Mm -hmm. what do you look for in a project? Kind of what is it that makes you say yes to a collaboration? I mean, I guess it's two things. Like I definitely, if it's a good script, um, I mean, there's so many scripts that are not awesome out there that it's hard to, and sometimes you can't always pick and choose. Sometimes you just need the work and you do it. But I would say it's more important that you and the director hit it off um, because if you don't, it's just going to be sort of a trying experience for both of you. And if you're on the same page, a lot of stuff and you sort of, if you trust that they know what they're doing, I think that's the most important thing is that there needs to be like sort of a mutual trust that, you know, I may not totally see where you're going, but I trust you know what you're doing. So I'm going to be okay with this and same. Um, But initially it's scripts. I mean, there's, if you can't, if you think the story is stupid or you're not really like into it, like you're probably not going to do your best work. What advice would you give to somebody who is, you know, pursuing a career in cinematography? Perhaps somebody who has been ACing for a couple of mm-hmm. years and has worked intimately with cinematographers, mm-hmm. um, but are now thinking about stepping into that role for themselves. Um, kind of what do you wish you knew? Oh God, everything. <laughs> uh, I, I think one of the hardest parts about being a cinematographer that I'm still learning honestly, is not necessarily the actual job of shooting something and making it look good, but sort of the more of the political and diplomacy needed and um, also how to run a crew and how to make sure like everyone's doing something that they're good at and using them. Um, I find I, because I have gaffed things and I have AC'd things that Sometimes, especially in lower-budget things, or there may be newer crew there, I, sometimes I'm just like, it's easier to do it myself, which is not how people learn. And it's hard when you're stressed out and under time crunch to let people do their job and kind of step back and realize, like, that's not your job anymore. I would honestly say relax about it a bit. I tend to get very stressed out in terms of, like, like am I doing this right? It's not how, like, I've seen it done. But if it looks right and it, it's working, then just... Trust yourself that you did it. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. When you're there, it's like, is yeah. this working? Like, yeah. Am I seeing what I want to see? Screen? Either is it's it not how like you planned it or like how you've seen other cinematographers you worked on or do it. Like as long as it's working, like that's what it is. Yeah. And also conversely, I feel like if you're doing it the way that you've mm-hmm. seen other people doing, but it's not working for you at the moment, right? Then stop doing that and try yeah. something else. Totally. Um, but definitely take what you've seen and learned under other people because it's a definitely a good jumping off point. Yeah, and on that, uh, we've spoken about this before, mm-hmm. is that um, that you've seen, um, like you've watched cinematographers yeah. work um, on, on larger sets mm-hmm. um, because you started out um, as a camera assistant mm-hmm. in Local 600. Can yeah. you speak about how you, know, you came to join the union? Yeah, um, so when I first started shooting after school, um, I was working in the non-union world as an AC and an operator, and... Um, and I mean, it was great. 
Uh, I met some great people. I was also in DC, which is a smaller market. And I really enjoyed myself and could have happily been there. But like at some point I kind of wanted to, I knew I wasn't working on the biggest things. I knew I was, I knew there was so much out there that I hadn't learned yet. Um, and like narrative spe- narratively speaking, there's not a whole lot that comes through DC. The people, things will come through for like a day, but you're not going to get the experience of being on a full feature or a full TV show. And I wanted that. And the only, really the only way to get that experience as an assistant, because I knew I wasn't ready to DP on that level yet, um, was to join the union. And so I did that. I actually joined in DC and then I moved to New York and then started working as a camera assistant. Um, and it's a great experience. I, you know, I would totally recommend anyone do that or as an electric or, cause you just learn so much just seeing these people and it really sort of puts into perspective sort of the length of a career. Like I feel in the non-union world, um, you see people who are DPs who are like 25 and some of them are fantastic and you know, some aren't, but, but you kind of get into the mentality that like, Oh, I'm 30. I'm not a DP yet. Like I'm failing. No, you're not like the DPs in the union world. They're like 60 years old, 70 years old. And they're like, have only just been starting to DP. They've been operating and they've been first thing, you know, it's just sort of puts you back into a different mindset of like, this is a lifetime career, not like a, where you wake up one morning and you're on the top situation. Right, that you have to think in terms of five years, yeah. ten years, decades, mm-hmm. and and I reflect on this sometimes too. That you know, looking at some of your favorite films, mm-hmm. um, looking at the DPs, how old are they? In what yeah. decade of their career right. as a cinematographer are they? Yeah, you know? and I still get down on myself too. Like I'm like, I've been doing this for five years. I've only shot one feature. Like, but then I'm like, you're doing all right. Like, calm down. It's it's fine. So. It's, um, it's, I think it's, and also just, it's so important to just learn from the people who have been around and doing it for 30 years. Like they may do something and you may be like, why? But they've had 30 years to learn or to try other ways, you know, any particular nugget that you Uh, can remember. So a lot of directors will want to shoot 360 and with Steadicam, it's usually what happens. So the ability to light things that are not on stands, I guess, um, I, and this comes with money and sets and stuff. Yeah. But I feel like sometimes on smaller projects, you're kind of at the mercy of where the light stand is or the C stand. Absolutely. And, yeah. and a lot of the time, I would say 75% of the time on union sets, like there are no stands anywhere. Like they're hung from the tr- trusses or like coming up from behind something. Like, so you can, you have that ability. And so it's nice to be able to think in terms of that light where it makes sense. Like if there's a window here, don't put the key on the other side. You know, like light can be streaming through the window. It happens every day. It does. Also, I think one of my favorite quotes that I've ever heard on set, on a larger set, was like, well, shadows happen in life too. <laughs> like, yes. I was just like, you're right. Their shadows are not bad. They're not, I mean, they shouldn't be distracting, but they're, they happen. That's what happens when light hits things. The film school controversy. Yes. Yes, film school or no film school. People ask this all the time. Okay. What do you think? So I have many opinions on this. Um, I will say whatever makes more sense to you at the moment. Um, I was living in DC and not working in film. So it's sort of a career switch for me because I did not come out of undergrad doing that. I went to grad school at American University for their film program. 
um, which is not like a school that's necessarily renowned for it. They have a very good documentary program, but they have a narrative one. And, and like any film school, it's what you make of it. So for me, I think that was a really important thing for me to do. If I was already living in New York and already around or had access to some sets in a non-union world, I would say maybe not, you know? So it sort of depends on where you are in your life, I feel. Um, if you're doing a career switch, it's definitely a way to sort of jumpstart that. Um, if you're graduating undergrad and you already kind of know what you want to do and you can, you have a connection somewhere, I would say go for that. So I don't really think there's a better or worse way. I think especially in independent, um, filmmaking in, in the New York market, definitely there's a lot of sort of owner operators. Like Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts in terms of owning gear versus renting gear? It's a big question for me too. Yeah. Um, so my, my, my general stance on owning versus renting gear is that you should rent. That being said, um, I have kind of come around to owning a bit just for the point that it will get you more work when you're starting out. Um, I think it's a, I think it's silly, um, that that is the case, but that is the world we live in. Um, so I, and the reason I, you know, would advocate renting is because each film necessitates a different style or look, or honestly, even just space wise, if you're shooting in a really small space, you're not going to want Alexa, you know, whereas if you're shooting a lot of handheld, you're not going to want something that's not balanced. Right. So it, that's why I think renting is good because I personally feel that each story sort of wants its own look and own, you know, movement and style. And, and there are some cameras that can do almost everything, but not every camera can do everything. Um, and in terms of owning gear, I used to say that the only things I would ever buy was glass, um, which is very expensive. So I'm revising my opinion on that because we're not millionaires. But I, it will get you more work when you're starting out. And I don't like that that's the case, but it is. And, and the funny thing that I find very entertaining about this whole situation is that producers will think that they're saving money when they're really not. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to start to charge you the same rental for my gear as a rental house would charge you. But for some reason, it's more palatable to them. And I, I don't understand why, right, yeah. but it is. It's really funny. Yeah. yeah. So that's sort of my stance on that. Um, I always advocate like renting. Um, I mean, honestly, because of the shelf life of cameras too. Like it's not the best investment ever. Yeah. I mean, there are certain cameras and certain uh, things I will say that actually are good investments, like Preston's. Preston's are always being rented out. Um, but I mean, but you know, if you're buying like a prosumer camera, there's going to be a new one in two years and you're not going to get rentals on that anymore. And it's, you know, I mean, you can still use it, but it's not going to make you the money that you thought might when you bought it. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think yeah. it, it's a definitely a difficult question to answer. So I feel yeah. like it's always yes and no. Yeah. It's like, if you're going to, if you're going to start buying, you have to dive into this whole question and you're always thinking about yeah, it, thinking yeah. about the market value right. of what you own and the anxiety of it. And also, like, it's... The good thing about owning is that you can rent out your camera on one job and work on another job, so you're basically getting two incomes for that day. That being said, it's another business. Yeah, it's, it's another, another thing business, you have to keep risk. track of. Yep. It's another LLC. It's yep. another whole yep. situation. So you need to make sure you have time for that Absolutely. or else you're just sort of not getting your money's worth on that. Yeah. 
what are you concentrating on in, in okay. 2018? Um, in 2018, I'm, I'm trying to focus on shooting projects that I feel more passionately about um, and not just sort of taking the paycheck. So at the moment, um, I have... I'm an interview for another feature, which I, I guess that's another thing. I really want another feature this year. Um, it's been a couple of years. I've done a lot of shorts and web series, which is great and fun. And I'm doing another web series in the spring, and I'm excited about that. But I really want another feature. And also work with people that I think I would like, would like to work with again in the future, as opposed to like kind of a one-off yeah, I think situation. trying to find relationships yeah. like in the um That's indie the narrative world. Yeah, yeah, in the in the narrative world is is very tricky. It is. And yeah. it's very important. Yeah. And I think that's probably the hardest part about like transitioning to DPing from an ACU standpoint is finding that director that's gonna bring you along with them and you know, you won't have to like reinvent your language every time. Well put. Um, anything else that you would want uh, people to know, either about your work oh. or advice that you want to give them? Okay, let's see. That it's a lot of work, I guess. Um, I'm always working. Like, you're never not working. Yeah, I'm working right now. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. And my roommates actually, they're like, oh, are you working today? Or, or you're not working? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm working. I'm just not on set. I'm not on set currently, so I'm not really getting paid, but I'm still working. So I guess um, just, you know, just realize that it's a 24-hour job because you are your own product. So you're, you're sort of always going to be hustling. And this is actually important. So I thought this was a struggle unique to like younger DPs. And I was talking to um, one of the older union DPs and he was like lamenting the same complaints I have every day. And I was just like, so it never ends, huh? He's like, no, it never ends. And I was like, that kind of makes me feel good in a way and also is a little bit depressing. <laughs> Right, that so, you are doing something right, but, yeah, but it's, it's never the gonna same. end. It's yeah. gonna be the same. So yeah. I guess just realize that it's a lot of work. It's fun, and it's one of the best jobs one can have. But if you don't love it and you're not willing to do that work, then you know I'm sure there's other cool things to do too. But uh, well, thank you so much, Autumn, for joining us. You are very welcome, Barbie. Where can we find you in the internet? Oh. Um, you can find me on my website, uh um, or Instagram is probably where you're going to see more of my current work as I am terrible at updating my reel, um, and which is just at Autumn Moran. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Side Pony from Oakland, California for letting me use their song Sharpshooter as our intro and outro song. Find them on sidepony510.bandcamp.com. food it's Isn't delightful exciting i like want that that like i don't care about stoves i don't know how to use them but the microwave yeah no yeah. i i wanted to buy it in white actually because uh-huh. this color was more expensive and mm. when it arrived it, it just, was just was there you go error in my favor oh, love it i figured it's what do adorable. i really need it in a microwave you know that's yeah you need to look pretty it needs to look pretty and that's then basically it you know I'm really jealous. It's like 700 watts, so like it takes you like an extra minute, yeah. but you know, still, it's fine. Who needs who needs to be super quick on that? No, it's it's great. Okay, okay. I have my questions. Great. Okay. I'm still obsessing with microwave, but it's okay.